information presented is in no way to be considered as a standard of care, and the content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The information is provided with no guarantee. All content is for informational purposes only and does not constitute providing of medical, legal, or regulatory advice. All right, good morning, everybody. Welcome to this edition of Blue Crew Medicine. Uh, today, we're going to do pediatric toxicology, a little bit of peds talks. So today I've got joining me is uh, Dr. Matt Moretti, who is joining us again, uh, PDM Fellowship Director, PDR attending, friend of us over here all the time. Uh, and then I got a couple of newbies coming to the podcast who uh, I've worked with for years, but Paul Boackle, uh, Air Care Flight Nurse, or uh, BFN, and then Brad Johnston, who is just Brad. Um, <laughs> one of the Aircare CCPs. Both of them work out of here, out of Aircare One in, in Jackson. So today, let's get right down to it. Peds talks. Uh, when I think of peds toxicology, personally, I think of something that's complicated and something that makes me think. It's not something usually that's really simple. Some of them are super simple. Hey, they ingested this, or hey, I walked into this, or they were exposed to different things. But it can get really complex and really, really quick. So. For us today, since there's such a wide variety of topics, we're going to kind of break it down in between environmental tox and medication-induced toxicology. Um, so getting right down into environmental stuff, biggest thing from the get-go is decon before they get to the ER or before we get in the airframe. Absolutely. Uh, we see it pretty regular. People will come in and they haven't been able to get decon. If they come in POV, that's one thing. But if they're coming from another medical facility, if you're out in the field EMS, try to figure out if you can decon them before you do that. Mm-hmm. What are y'all thoughts on decon? Yeah, so this is something uh, he and I had talked about. Um, you know, my background before I came here was firefighter. So one of the things they taught us when we were going through hazardous materials training was utilizing, you know, what we have on the trucks to, to decon people. So, you know, if you had a mass, uh, you know, a, a lot of a mass casualty incident where a lot of people got exposed to a substance, you know, you might could utilize a fire truck, you know, an elevated stream off of the ladder and have them walk under that, you know, as they're coming into the bay or coming in, you know, outside of the ER. Uh, it's just an easy way. It's gross decon. You know, you're not going to get all of it, but that will get your the majority of what you need done. Just a, a quick gross decon. Um, and then that can also, you know, when you're talking about triaging patients, you know, if they're able to walk underneath that, well, then they're walking wounded. You know, for the most part, their airway is good at the time. Their mental status is good if they can walk. So, um, you know, utilize utilize your resources. You know, we have a a fire station, uh, JFD has a fire station within two minutes of the hospital here in Jackson. I believe it's station five, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, so you could activate them early. You know, that's something to think about. Just, you know, utilize your resources. You have Medcom here uh, in the hospital is a fantastic resource for, you know, if you need DEQ. Um, there's a, a group out at the air base, I believe the 47th civil support team. Mm-hmm. That's mainly what they deal with is hazardous materials, you know, whether that be nuclear, biological, you know, radiation, any type of, of, uh, toxic, toxic substance. That's the kind of stuff that they're trained. That's all they do is that type of stuff. So that would be a good resource. They have all types of equipment that we don't have here at the hospital. So just, you know, try to think a couple of steps ahead and, and utilize your resources uh, where you think you might need them. You know, if you, you can always send them back if you don't need them. So. I know for, kind of from a transportation um, aspect of it, and 
Brad kind of touched on this. I think communication is key um, all throughout, um, whether it's talking about whether they've been deconned or what they may have been exposed to um, from that aspect at your patient contact point all the way through. Uh, it may be calling, you know, poison control. It may be, you know, calling to the PZD to get a consult just to let them know, hey, th we're not sure, but this is what we suspect. Uh, we do have decon assets here in the emergency department at, at the intake. I can remember years ago, not specific to PEDS, but back when uh, anthrax was a significant concern and a lot more common scares, the EMS crew took this patient that had a suspected contamination and put them right in the back with them. No mask, no gown, literally all they had was gloves and they drove all the way here. And then at what point they said, okay, well now everybody has to get out and disrobe. Um, but I do think just as a additional consideration in the pediatric population, uh, whether it's gross decon or otherwise, uh, regardless of where it's done, you gotta pay attention to thermal stresses and you know cold stress in those people. Even in warmer days, uh, those kids may get you know, some thermal exposure that might not be quite as big of a deal to an adult to get hosed down with a kid. It may make a, make a difference and we could see a change in vital signs afterwards. So, Yeah, I think if you look kind of guideline recommendations for any chemical exposure, be it powder, gas, liquid, whatever. So any sort of contaminated chemical exposure, um, especially in the pre-hospital setting, thinking about decon early and not even having to get complicated, <clears throat> literally just they get completely disrobed. And if you have the ability to wash them down, you wash them down as soon as possible. And you just don't carry any of that with you. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, there's lots of stories, Paul, about um, EMS crews trying to do quick thinking like emergent care and transporting sick patients to institutions and having harm from it. Um, nobody with a chemical on them should be put in the back of an ambulance or certainly not in the back of a helicopter, um, still wearing the clothes that they had on the ground, um, taking those things off rapidly. This is one of the reasons why fire trucks and ambulances have always kind of recommended carrying blankets with you so that you can have these events, mm -hmm. um, stripping them naked um, down to their skivvies and trying as best you can to wash them off and then putting them in a blanket before you transport. Definitely, you know, pediatric patients are going to be a little bit more uh, vulnerable to uh, outdoor temperatures, um, especially if you are successful in washing them off. But, you know, put them in a blanket, turn up the heat in the back of the ambulance or the, as best you can in a helicopter can um, make a big difference there. But pretty much anything you get exposed to worsens the longer it's there. Sure. Uh, and so getting that crap off extremely early. And I agree, call ahead um, because whether or not you did a super thorough job at the scene, they still need to be rewashed when they get sure. to wherever they are. Because mm -hmm. if the emergency department does have a decon unit, which a lot of places do, they just, it may just literally be a shower mm -hmm. um, stuck in a room somewhere that has a special reservoir that keeps the mm -hmm. dirty stuff. Um, but a lot of places have a shower to wash contaminated patients. Um, they need to go in there pretty fast. Most of the things that are you know, 
in that this category of like dangerous to transport kind of stuff uh, can you can decrease decrease exposure tremendously just by running them through some water and taking their clothes off um, pretty rapidly and can improve outcomes substantially just by not even getting complicated just mm-hmm. take the clothes off wash them down be well, simple not- with it the other thing i wanted to bring up is the erg book so there's yeah. that bright orange book yeah. that most people may may not may not be familiar with um, i'll put a link here in the comments but there's actually an app for it now it's not quite as uh yeah, painful to tote around but there those erg books you can literally look it up mm-hmm. chemicals by any different way and it'll yeah. tell you how to decon them it'll tell you how to expose them how far you need to weigh mm-hmm. uh, most people use the uh, thumb rule as far as hazmat yeah. where you're Real approaching thumb. the site so if I can cover the site with my thumb, great, I'm far enough away that makes me feel good. But you still got to figure out how to decon those patients if you know the material. Now, those patients, you have no idea what it is. Usually water is a great answer. Just generally strip them, get them clean, get them, get them as uh, rid of the substance as best possible. But that ERG book is a great reference. We use it in the ERs. We have them in the airframes. Again, there's an app for that. And it's a great tool to figure out, hey, what's the best route to make sure I get it off effectively? Yeah. Sometimes you're literally like we're talking about some different substances before we started here. You may have to take a towel and literally just sit there and wipe them down, just like you would nitro paste off somebody's chest. Just yeah. literally just sit there and rub them down. And, um, and a lot of our listeners, I think, you know, it's important to communicate. This is not it's not as obscure as you think. Yeah. Um, we've worked car wrecks tons of times where just gas got on them. Yeah. Well, Covered in it's, a, it's a hydrocarbon yeah. and it's on their clothes. And if it's you know, in a closed space, it's going to, as it vaporizes and they're breathing it in, they could have not really inhaled any of it on the scene, but then you put them in a closed space, Mm -hmm. didn't take off their clothes. And now, you know, they've got inhalation of hydrocarbons. And so do you. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the, I think that's the other piece to that is, you know, they teach you from the very beginning at pre-hospital is secure the scene, right? If you carried the scene in the back of the truck with you, yeah. That's not real secure. Yep. Well, and something a lot of us found out during COVID, even ambulances, a lot of them have an exhaust fan or exhaust mm-hmm. vent on the switch. Does it actually recirculate or does it <laughs> yeah. truly exhaust it out of the truck? We had, we had an incidents here in one of our trucks. We thought it, re, it thought it exhausted and actually recirculated. Yeah. So make sure you understand your equipment or what you're transporting them in. You brought up hydrocarbons. Let's just go right into household items, yeah. and, which a lot of them we deal with pretty frequently, I think, in PZR here. Yeah. Um, but when I think of household items and stuff, especially stuff kids get into, everything in the kitchen sink, most everybody uses the locks or some of the little, we've got the little plastic tabs at our house. But mm-hmm. anything to keep them out of the Drano, the soap, the Murphy oil, the Pine Sol. Um, but any paint, paint thinners is one of my favorite ones. Uh, but any of those household items, when you guys think of household items that stuff can get into, what do y'all think of as far as management and exposure? You might see something, hey, my kid's just not acting right. What makes you think good? So so there's a few big categories that we kind of try to group things into. Uh, hydrocarbons are kind of the first big one. So things like paint thinners, um, your uh, WD-40 kind mm-hmm. of stuff, Pine Sol, like Murphy's Oil, all those types of oil-based kind of things that are really there to be hydrocarbons. So hydrocarbons are a major player uh, still to this day in pediatric uh, environmental talks. We see it quite a lot. Um, comes up on the, you know, uh, our fellows have, are doing like training on this. We've been done doing a lot of board prep. So there's a lot of board questions about it. 
uh, comes up all the time on the emergency medicine boards too. So uh, hydrocarbons pretty common. So um, being aware that you have them first is kind of actually a big point because a lot of people don't realize what they have mm-hmm. is a hydrocarbon. A lot of uh, they just don't even know that that kind of is that toxic. Um, good thing about hydrocarbons is you can kind of tell how bad it's going to be based on how thick it is. Uh, most of the time, the thicker, you know, hydrocarbons are going to be a lot less dangerous because they're going to stay in the stomach and they usually taste pretty bad and they smell pretty bad. So they're not as ingested as often. It's the thin stuff like paint thinners, gasoline that really kind of create major issues because they're volatile first off. So like Paul mentioned, uh, when he's talking about the gasoline uh, on the car accident victim, you're inhaling all that. Uh, and it can have profound CNS effects, very significant respiratory effects. Um, not as many people think about the very important like cardiac uh, activity mm-hmm. that hydrocarbons have, uh, which we can talk about in just a second. But um, the thin ones are easy to vomit, so you aspirate really mm-hmm. easily, uh, and they tend to be volatile, so they are already getting into the lungs in the first place. And they uh, look like juice. And they a lot of them look great. like yeah. juice. Yeah, so like apple juice. Yeah, yeah. kids it's are super that... familiar with them. Uh, pine saw is one. They put smells in them I mean, too that yeah. make them smell nice. Yeah, yeah. you know. Uh, so it, they are super dangerous. Um, you know, chemical pneumonitis from the respiratory effect, whether that's because you inhaled the gas or because mm-hmm. you aspirated it. Yeah, both big deals. Um, we see it a lot in, in kids. Um, Getting them out of the space and away from the chemicals, like rule number one. So if it was a spill type accident, you just kind of pull them out and just clean them off, get them away from it, take their clothes, get all that hydrocarbon away. If it was more of an ingestion, do what you can to make them not throw up. So this is not the, please God, don't give them syrupipipicac, don't stick your finger down their throat, don't do any of those things. We still see people come in, uh, having tried to make the kid vomit. Um, activated charcoal doesn't do jack and it's going to make them throw up. So like, don't do that. Um, we see those a lot. Um, they tend to not be super early presenters, which can be really scary, um, because they look fine for the first few hours. Um, plug for poison control, poison control recognizes this. They're going to tell you, you got to watch them for six hours. Um, if you try to send a hydrocarbon ingestion or exposure home in two hours, you have not watched them nearly long enough to feel safe. So getting them out of there pretty, getting them out of there quick is a bad idea. Um, but go, I, can go into the cardiac effects. Yeah, I've, I've so got a this is really thing. important to yeah. me because we've seen several instances in the past few years where this has kind of become an issue. So hydrocarbons, when they get in there, they actually cause some catecholamine surge. They hyperactivate the cardiac muscle. So if you use, if the patient were to have a cardiac arrest, which is usually because of respiratory causes, um, in most cases, you either let them get terribly hypoxic and so they arrested, or you like super stress them out. And so because of the catecholamine surge in their heart muscle, they went into an arrest. Uh, everybody pretends like it's normal and it's a normal cardiac arrest. And so they give like normal doses of epi and epi and epi and epi and epi and epi. And what we actually know from a toxicologic standpoint is um, epi is actually really bad for the hydrocarbon cardiac arrest. Uh, it can throw them into malignant uh, dysrhythmias that you mm-hmm. can't break them out of. Um, so most of the time, the actual recommendation is about a tenth of a dose. And so 
it's that thing that we always used to do, like epi spritzers, right? So figure out what their regular dose of epi is and give them a tenth. So if you're talking adults or adolescents, instead of pushing the whole bristol jet, you just push one ml. Um, much of the time, that's enough. Uh, and the longer you do that and the more you are pushing high dose epi, the less likely you are to actually give this person back. The other part of that is you mentioned making them not throw up. A lot of people were like, okay, well, I'm going to give them a whole bunch of Zofran so they don't throw it up or this, that, and the other, and then you end up with the QT. And then you got a QT and prolongation, and then then you've got like And then you throw them multiple. into this whole arrhythmogenic yeah. storm thing that ends up being a really bad day. I've seen that once in my career, and it was a very not Yeah, paying experience. attention to the heart part of hydrocarbons is really, really important. And I think people maybe to kind of dovetail in with that, I don't think a lot of people realize how small of a quantity, like a couple tablespoons could yeah. do it in a kid, right? Yeah, so um, depending on the type of hydrocarbon you're talking about, um, it can, it can yeah, it can get pretty bad. Uh, some of the fatal alcohols like methanol, mm -hmm. uh, like people still have sternos mm -hmm. in there. I've, you know, camped with them before. So you've got a great big hydrocarbon sitting there. Those things are greater than 50% concentrated. So for a kid, usually one gram per kilogram is going to be more than enough to send them into pretty serious toxicity. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we're talking like in a kid less than 20 kilograms, you're probably talking like five to 10 mLs of, meth of one of those sure turnos. Yeah. Um, and if it's if you did have like a true 100% methanol or 80% methanol kind of fuel, it's less than a mouthful mm -hmm. and, and so less than a mouthful all they got to do is dip their finger and it suck on their finger and they've had enough methanol to have a very very profound toxicity so working through household items a little bit more let's go through some of the chlorine stuff a lot of people in mississippi we all have pools yeah. um a lot of people get there's two things that come to mind with chlorine uh, one is the gas if you get yeah. somehow it's aerosolized or what have you but also the tablets or the gel packs i've seen yep. now uh those are something that again it's kind of like the tide pods they're pretty colors <laughs> and they're like "Ooh, this is candy, candy i'm gonna yeah. take it this looks like a big altoid yeah i mean we we had just recently the big chlorine gas exposure uh and had to deal with that so yeah i mean fortunately knock on wood you know most homes that sub use chlorine to manage their pools aren't don't have indoor pools most people now that's not everybody I, but most of these places are outdoors and so in general as long as you don't have like the liquid doesn't get all over you or something you're which would be bad uh then you're pretty safe but like these indoor pools like at ymcas and at you know your different types of gyms or things like that that's always a potential risk um, chlorine gas is super bad. Like um, anybody with military experience has had to go through training on, you know, the dangers of it, what to look for on the battlefield, stuff like that. This is one of the blistering agents, right? And so um, I just, I kind of think about it, everything burns, right? So your eyes burn, your skin burns, your lungs burn. They come in super striderous, mm -hmm. uh, lots of wheezing and coughing. Their eyes are burning. Their skin is usually a little bit red, and eventually it will blister. Um, this is another one of those things. Don't throw this in the back of your ambulance um, until you have <clears throat> taken their clothes off and washed them off. Uh, and it, it can be that gas and the liquids that kind of people use to, to make it. Um, 
you can get really, really sick in a really quick hurry. Um, and we saw that, you know, just recently with the chlorine gas exposure. Um, and the first, I want to back up a little. Yeah. The first managed treatment with chlorine is oxygen. Just flood them for the most part. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, I would say the first is decon. Well, decon. P- I, I got back up. Decon. Yeah, yeah. Decon them first. And before you ever even stick them at the back of your fire truck or the back of your ambulance or the back of whatever, wash the heck out of them. If they manage to somehow make it all the way to the ER before anybody did anything, they need to get washed down before you mess with them because everybody can succumb to that chlorine gas. Well, that's, you know, we had a crew member exposed to chlorine, uh, basically a chlorine explosion at yeah. his home. He was mixing some stuff to put in his pool several months ago. It would been great if we could have talked to him about that. But anyway, <laughs> uh, it exploded uh, directly into his face, mm-hmm. and it was a significant enough explosion that neighbors heard it. Um, he ended up in the ICU intubated. And I think the only reason he had as, as good of an outcome as he did is he immediately, when it happened, staggered and luckily found a water hose and deconned himself for 10 minutes waiting on the ambulance, you know, just continually deconning, you know, his face. And he still ended up, as you said, he came into the ER striderous, wheezing, red starting to blister and ended up getting you know electively intubated for airway protection because they were concerned with his airway swelling so yes decon and then you know the oxygen you know, that was yeah. get him on oxygen early um definitely can help the situation these are people i'd probably if you're out in the community and you know your helicopter crew having to go pick that person up and transport them these are probably people that you consider elective airway control pretty mm-hmm. early if they're having a lot of upper airway issues already because yeah. everybody knows it sucks to intubate somebody you know at 10,000 feet so like don't do it so just before you take off kind of those things um, but early oxygen um, if they are having true already blistering um, you know consider insensible losses uh, like burn care kind of stuff um, we targeted really well with I've targeted a couple of times but with the incident Brad's talking about was urine output making sure yep. the kidneys are still watching everything that. else because mm-hmm. it is an interstitial loss thing it, it comes out kind of like a burn yeah right up. absolutely the well, ingested chlorine uh, they get sick as stink not from like I mean they just like vomit and won't stop mm-hmm. vomiting and their body is heavily rejecting that and then you can unfortunately aspirate that those tablets or if it's the liquid you can aspirate that liquid and it just does terrible things to your lungs Um, they can go into just terrible terrible args chemical pneumonitis end up on ecmo i was gonna say vv ecmo is one of the case studies i was reading prep for this they're like yeah we went to vv ecmo within like 12 hours yeah it's it can and they uh it was a kid ingested about half of a chlorine tablet from a pool and aspirated it and lungs were smoked you, they end up on ECMO for a long time. When we start talking about other things in the house or other environmental stuff, uh, carbon monoxide, mm-hmm. house fires. It's yesterday in Mississippi. For those of you listening, uh, <laughs> it was 31 last night at my house. Uh, it was nice frost on the grass. So carbon monoxide, cyanide, both coming along with house fires. Super common. We see it all the time. I'm sure we'll see it again this year. Unfortunately, uh, carbon monoxide is one of those environmental things. Get them out of the environment first. Yes. And then flood them. Biggest thing is flood them with oxygen best you possibly can. Make sure they, to the point we'll keep talking back on decon, but make sure you take off their burn clothes. Make sure you yeah. take off of any anything that 
stops the burning process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, Mississippi per capita has more fire deaths every year than I believe any other state in the country. Um, and a lot of that is we're so rural, you know, uh, a, lot, a lot of poor people, you know, they don't have smoke detectors. They don't have, you know, they live in you know, bad environments. So we have a lot of people that end up, you know, not just not even talking about getting burned, thermal burns, but they just inhale, smoke. as you said, cyanide, CO. And uh, the thing is, you know, a lot of the times, you know, both of those can kind of present the same way, you know, altered mental status, of course, you know, respiratory depression, but we see a lot of that in Mississippi, uh, a lot. I, th I think here. something to really kind of piggyback on that is that space heaters uh you know people don't really think about it there's a lot of great new technology out there on like you know the little buddy heaters and stuff like that where they have detectors mm -hmm. oxygen sensors if it falls below a certain point it'll actually you know cut off on its own little propane heaters but there's a lot of people that have older space heaters and you know things that don't necessarily have a carbon monoxide or oxygen sensor on it. It's just, hey, it's got tip over protection, must be safe. Put it in the house, closed space, they go to sleep and, you know, they're getting exposed to it for a prolonged period of time. Or even yep. in Mississippi, we some, especially in the northern part of the state, there may be some of these older houses that have those big boilers still. Yes. And yeah. the, man, those things leak or they have a, they don't have the right sensors on them or whatever, have a carbon monoxide sure. associated with it. Everybody's, you know, sleeping at night when the heater's wide open. Yeah. Same thing, same scenario happened down there. Yeah, we did. I did fellowship training in the Midwest where winter there and winter here were 40 degrees different. Uh, and unfortunately, we saw way more carbon monoxide up there than we see down here, which is good from a, a down here standpoint. But unfortunately, most of them are related to house fires. Mm -hmm. um, but the other places we see them, people don't think about you spend all day at the boat. Mm -hmm. um, you're sitting right by the motor all day. You you know, it's your boat, so you're gonna drive the motor, right? Mm -hmm. uh, your little trolling motor just pumping gas all the time, all the time, all the time. And people get carbon monoxide poisoning from that. You can get it from grills. Anything that's burning a hydrocarbon produces carbon monoxide to some degree. So just kind of being cognizant of those things. Um, cyanide, you know, uh, Brad mentioned it. it fortunately, uh, you, you really only see cyanide from plastic melting. So uh, assuming it's not a house fire, you should really never have to worry at all about cyanide. But as we said, a lot of these are, if you've got Tupperware, piles of Tupperware in the house, that's the only thing, you know, piles of old butter bowls that you use to kind of put everything in the fridge. Uh, the fridge, you know, the microwave, all these things have plastic all over them. A lot of people's furniture has plastic all over them. And so if you're succumbing to the smoke, uh, and so you kind of pass out in your house, mm -hmm. all that smoke is melt, you know, coming from that melting plastic also has cyanide in it. And so at least thinking about looking for it is really, really important. And you don't need like a fancy test or anything like that. I think Paul and I have actually managed one of these. Uh, he was, you were transporting and then I was at UMC, um, and we were just checking gases, mm -hmm. you know, and the kid had like crazy crazy intense lactic acidosis i think lactate was like greater than 15 mm -hmm. and he was acidotic to less than 6.9 so we were like yeah this kid's got gotta have had yeah. and cyanide and 
Uh, so just something simple like checking a gas and a lactate. If you're at your community ER, you don't need a cyanide test. You don't need any of those things. You literally just need a gas and lactate because regular carbon monoxide fire exposure does not cause just really profound lactic acidosis. Both of them cause the anaerobic metabolism to kick in, but the, the lactate increase, I, I didn't know this until a couple of years ago, and I know we've had a previous episode on this, but cyanide, the lactate will increase to like eight or 10 yeah. within 20 to 30 minutes of yeah. the inset. You won't see that ever with a fire exposure, like unless the body is already dead, um, you're not ever going to see lactates greater than eight. Yep. Um, and so if, you know, typically what we tell people is if your lactate's anywhere close to 10, you need to assume that that person has cyanide. And again, protect yourself because yeah. that cyanide is something that they have also inspired. Mm -hmm. And so as you're bagging the patient or whatever you're doing, um, right up in their face to intubate them, they're just blowing cyanide gas into your face. Mm -hmm. And I, I know of um, EMTs uh, and RTs who have had cyanide toxicity because of exposure to mm -hmm. affected patients. So again, <laughs> decon. Uh, think about think about yourself too. So uh, you got to keep yourself safe. If you've got a house fire, if somebody's succumbed, uh, they're down, and you know, just assume bad things from the pre-hospital setting. Get them disrobed. Get rid of those clothes. Take a wet towel like you were saying, Will, and just wash their face off really fast, put them in one of your fire blankets, and then throw them in the back of the ambulance. And if you're the community ER person, one of the first things you draw is a, a yeah. gas with a lactate, because um, you can make a huge difference. I, I would add one more thing is, is most departments and ambulance services don't carry, um, kind of bridging back, yeah, they don't, they don't carry the specific carbon monoxide detectors, which I know Massimo makes them. And I I'm think sure the, some of the 15, the lifeback 15s, yeah, 15s have them, have them. Yeah. but the just spectroscopy. Well, it, it, just being very specific, just because you're, you know, your normal sat probes are just picking up on a specific wavelength of light and it's only measuring bound hemoglobin. It doesn't tell you what it's bound to. Yeah. Whereas those specific detectors. So I would just stress to, <clears throat> to anybody at every level, don't stop giving the hundred percent oxygen. Mm with whatever it is, carbon monoxide or otherwise, you know, we can worry about weaning them yeah. later on once we've been able to sort of drill down to what the problem actually yeah. is. And, you know, if they're in a house fire and there was a lot of synthetic furniture, that's something that could, you know, yeah. potentially add to the cyanide, but whether it's carbon monoxide, cyanide, whatever, continue to give them the high flow, hundred percent oxygen, even yeah. if their sats are a hundred, don't worry about weaning them. You know, we, yeah. we can figure that out. That's a down downstream issue we can wean. I would actually say um, it's it's that's an even more important statement to those people who do have the coox pulse oximetry. Mm -hmm. It's not reliable. <laughs> uh, there's so much literature out there that says that photospectroscopic coximetry mm -hmm. is bad. Like it's not good. It's not consistent, reliable. You can't trust it. The so, studies are all done on healthy people, yeah, not on yeah. people that are actually burning. Not on sick yeah. folks. Not on, not on people who smoke all the time anyway. Mm -hmm. um, and so none of that's particularly helpful. And so I I would argue, you know, A, if you're a, an EMS company owner, like don't waste the money on it. Just put them on 100% oxygen mm -hmm. and you're going to be fine. Um, and let, the, let somebody else downstream worry about it. But even if you do have it and it comes up 
quote normal for somebody that succumbed to smoke inhalation in the house. Like, don't Treat trust them that. Period. Treat yeah. them, period. Just yeah. there's nothing. It, it's cheap. You're already carrying oxygen. Like, mm-hmm. just throw the mask on, turn it all the way up, and then roll out of there. Um, yeah, I don't ever. Um, I, you know, those things are not they're not reliable enough to alter treatment to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we teach when we teach courses and when I used to teach fire um, med stuff up in the Midwest, we just told them, don't even, don't even waste your time on that. If somebody asks you later, what was there? You just like, we just put them on hundred percent rolled because yeah. they were sick mm-hmm. and, and nobody's going to fault you for it. And the difference you can make in getting their CO level down, uh, on 100% FI2 is profound. You can take, you can drop 90% of their carbon monoxide mm-hmm. uh, in an hour on 100% non rebreather. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no reason not to. The only reason I can think of is paraquat poisoning. <laughs> <laughs> and if they don't have that, they're getting oxygen. They're getting oxygen. Everybody could get oxygen. Real fast, the dose for cyanide. If you do have hydroxycobalamin or have a cyano kit, uh, for adults, it's five grams. For kids, it's 70 milligrams per kilo, max of five grams. So, uh, the lily kits are usually, it's, usually it's 2.5 grams, but. Um, I was just going to say one one thing maybe to add with that is, you know, if you administer that cyano kit, it's going to throw off. If you try to pull a carboxyhemoglobin later, yeah. it's going to throw all your, it does. all your measurements mm-hmm. off. So, you know, if it's possible, you could pull up a, a gas, a coox, a gas, whatever, before you right administer before it. you give it. Yeah, Cause yeah. that's something that yeah. the patient that they were both talking about that uh, we flew. That was one thing. That was the first time I'd ever given it to administer a sign of yeah. yeah, it. Was Greenwood. It was both of yeah. yeah. And uh, that was something that we discussed after yeah. was the effects of it, you know, downstream. So if you could get up, I can't remember. I, I wish I would have pulled the chart. I remember them. I think they pulled. They pulled a gas they, about five minutes before we, yeah. we came in the door. And they had a, it was just printing out when we got there. Mm-hmm. And we brought the kit with us. Mm-hmm. And um, there was multiple patients from a house fire, and and we ended up administering it to this child. And yeah, I think we actually repeated it. We, we, we did. did. We gave a second yeah. dose. We did. We talked to Tox, and they were like, "Yeah, it's probably fine. Give me yeah. a second. Yeah. They, uh, yeah, that kid had a lactate of almost fifteen. Yeah, it was it was really it was really really, really high. Yeah. Um, just something I want to throw out. You know, the talking about CO, you know, it does not take that much. I think I I can't remember from back when I was firefighter i think 500 parts per million mm-hmm. is generally considered a the upper end of a lethal or the, the starting point of a lethal dose i mean it can get way higher than that in an enclosed yeah you know enclosed area in a, in a house fire and you know all these everything in your house now is synthetic you know back in the day you know years and years before i was, before any of us started doing you know firefighting Nope, the firemen never wore mask yeah. because everything was cotton, wool. It was it was not synthetic substances in the house, so the firemen didn't have to. They could breathe that smoke all day, and it didn't affect them as much. But now everything is synthetic. It's, it's totally different. And anybody that works at a place that, that goes to fires a lot, they'll tell you that. You know, the smoke is different nowadays mm-hmm. just because of the synthetic material. Stuff has hydrocarbons, you know, synthetics in the couches, the, the mattresses, all that stuff. So... Got formaldehyde in it. Too. Yeah, I mean, you know, you mentioned refrigerators. You know, the Freon, if that stuff burns, it turns, I believe it's phosgene gas. Mm-hmm. You know, everything synthetic is bad. <laughs> it just and it and to your point, you know, about you know the ERG book. You know, a lot of these. Um, I remember learning in hazmat. You know, the the most dangerous hazmat scene you could work is something like a Walmart truck 
or FedEx. FedEx because they do not have to. They have all these different substances on there. And, they and if they mix, the yeah, and if they mix together, you don't know what in the heck you have. On they them. store so. just enough of them that they're under the DOT reg. Yep. And so when you they they may be two ounces under, but they're just mm -hmm. enough under that when they ship them, and if they turn over and turns into a fire, man, it's yeah, a bad it's, you day. know, like you said, if 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 somebody's transporting a big container of X substance you can look you know there's a nice little placard on there 1405 or whatever it is it's going to tell you exactly what that is and how to treat it but if everything's mixed together you don't know what you have maybe something way way worse so one more thing i almost forgot is um that we've seen here in the last few years with disasters or power failures you know going into the the winter season with potential people losing power from an ice storm or whatever but you know hurricanes tornadoes anything where people are using generators yep. leaving the generator in their house yep. that's in the house that's either, or even in the garage the garage door is yeah. open i get generators in there i get yep. it you don't want the generator stolen i'm with you i'm, I'm on the same track but if it's in the garage it's yep. attached to the house mm -hmm. every time you open the that back door you're letting high concentrations mm -hmm. in yep. and so so I don't know if anybody cares about medical history. I think medical history is really interesting. Uh, <laughs> I'm such a nerd. Uh, Brad, you mentioned the five parts per million, the 5% kind of stuff. Do you know where those numbers come from? Mm -hmm. So the guy that did the experience, this is super sketchy, uh, and nobody would ever be allowed to do this today. Uh, but the way that they found what levels have toxicities is this guy took a bunch of stray dogs, taped a hose to the back of a truck, like a back of a vehicle, mm -hmm. and he just funneled car exhaust in and he would measure what parts per million started causing like cardiac toxicity and respiratory wow. toxicity and neurotoxicity never would allow that today uh and he would just like measure he just killed a bunch of dogs just mm. putting a bunch of car exhaust into them just wow. seeing how much it took to kill kill mm. the dog wow. i did not know that yep so moving sure on there's duct tape involved you know, <laughs> oh yeah duct tape and a little bizarre little weird pipe man moving on um <laughs> So something else we see a lot in Mississippi, rural area, farming communities, um, my family, a lot of it in the Delta, organophosphates. So yeah. it's a wonderful test question that they love to give. <laughs> I think every level of medicine, whether it's yeah. your EMR all the way through PZM and everybody else, mm -hmm. organophosphates, we see them a lot, uh, pretty good bit. It's harvest yeah. season around here, but. Which one did y'all do? Did y'all do dumbbells or sludge? Sludge. Sludge bees. And you know what's, what he, like he said, it's on every exam. It is. When I got out of paramedic school, I was like, I was expecting I was going to see this like all the time. Like, yeah. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Like, because yeah. it was drilled into a sludge, you know, and I, I don't know. I've never seen it personally. Well, I have. It just oh, depends on, it depends, A, it depends on what part of the country mm -hmm. you're in. Mm -hmm. Like if you're in South Texas, where they just got fields and fields and fields with mm -hmm. migrant workers, and the fields are too big to pesticide any other way other than a flyover. You see it like you still see some like private families that have larger farms use organophosphates as pesticides. Uh, you don't see it as much as you used to, um, but we definitely still see it. There was a, a pediatric patient out in the state earlier last month that co-ingested hydrocarbon and organophosphate uh, and ended up succumbing uh and did not make it but it was uh it was another one of those and so 
rural families, farms, you still see it a good bit. Migrant farms, you still see it a good bit. Uh, large scale farming uh, organizations where they're still doing flyovers, you see it a good bit. Um, it's another decon one, right? Like yeah. you got sprayed with organic phosphate. God, you gotta yeah. get that crap off of them. What that's a the minimum, down the minimum the shower time, if I remember right, is thirty minutes. Yeah, it's a twenty thirty minute shower, yeah. and you don't you don't go in there with them. They just stand there. Um, some places, and it's you mentioned earlier about environmental stuff. Like some places don't those showers in the ER decon rooms are not always heated. Mm -hmm. So taking a thirty minute cold shower. Yeah. Just sounds like a bad day. It's miserable already. <laughs> it's already a cold bad stress. thing. Uh, the good thing at uh, the Children's Hospital where I did fellowship, they actually had heated decon mm -hmm. showers. Uh, they got the heated floor too? No. Oh. Uh, if you fell down on the floor, it was like ice. Um, but they are bad deal. Sludge bees is my favorite. Um, some people like dumbbells. I didn't like dumbbells because you forget that there's more than one bee. Yeah. Uh, but I think that's always a big one. When you see sludge, it's not a – a lot of people think, oh, I may see all of it at once. Sometimes you may have one or two yeah. symptoms manifest at a time. And then it, now if you let it progress all the way through, it's yeah. it's a true progression. And they do – it's every orifice they have liquid coming from it. Yeah. yeah. So when you start seeing one or two, it's one of those – I don't know exactly what uh, poison control is going to tell you to monitor how long, but it – if they ingest it or are exposed to it, minimum six hours. Or yeah. don't don't dismiss it. Hey, this is one of those patients you want to watch for a long time, or make yep. sure that hey, this is not progressing. It's not something even as a parent. Hey, all right, we're going to watch her get night. Yeah, it's complicated actually. So the overwhelming majority of patients are going to be symptomatic within three hours. So a six-hour watch is the minimum that poison control is usually going to recommend. Um, but there are known organophosphates that are used in like um, various and sundry farming, you know, agrarian kind of rules that they actually are known to not present for 15 hours um, and 30 hours. So trying to get to the bottom of what it was is really, really helpful for your poison control call. Like, you know, get if the, you know, for we're talking kids here. So dad's going to come flying in the door with the child. Um, to your local ER, um, and he may not have brought anything with him. So, you know, that's what cell phones, God made cell phones for a reason. Like, call somebody at the house or your neighbor or somebody to go and get the name of the product. Take a picture of it. Take don't a bring picture it. on the way don't out. Bring it. <laughs> Whatever you got. Yeah, don't bring it here. Don't bring it. God don't bring that. it. Don't bring it into the ER, but take a picture of it um, because it, it matters. There are, most of them are going to present really rapidly, but they're not necessarily. And yeah, um, for those who don't remember, just in case, sludge bees, right? Salivation, lacrimation, urination, defecation, mm -hmm. gastric emesis, and then the bees is bronchospasm, bronchorrhea, and bradycardia. So they don't all present once, but mm -hmm. any one of them is enough that you should be worried about toxicity. And this is something that we kind of teach a lot to the trainees is just because they're not bradycardic or you know having wheezing does not mean that they're fine. If they are drooling, and they're crying, you need to assume bad things. Uh, and when you make that phone call to poison control, they are not asymptomatic. They are symptomatic, symptomatic. from their organophosphate ingestion and you need to go from there. But the other thing we always remember is the sludge bee stuff, that's only half of it, mm -hmm. right? That's the only the muscarinic mm -hmm. part. Yep. So all of these are muscarinic and nicotinic processes. And so these are true, true, true cholinergics. Mm -hmm. And so they affect both sides of that mm -hmm. fence. And so 
watching for fasciculations, watching for neuromuscular changes, watching for seizures, watching for CNS depression is really important too. Um, because if you're having those things, you know, and all you have in your ER is atropine, they got to go somewhere else. Yeah, and you probably don't, and you, you probably don't have enough atropine. You probably don't. That's you what don't. I was going to ask. I mean, we carry two pound on, on the aircraft. Oh, good. And yeah. I know we have it here at the medical yes. center. Yeah. Are, are rural ER, do they? Are they depends. Like it depends totally on the ER. It yeah, depends totally on the size and what yeah, have you. Pralidoxime is expensive yeah. to keep and it expires and like. The good news is I think your expiration dental ORs are seven years. Yeah. Yeah. And the only way it should ever be given is in 2 pam. Mm-hmm. And so like you're not just buying pralidoxime to kind of keep for any other purpose. Like the only thing that we use oxymes for is this and it always has to be given with atropine. Yeah. Uh, and so you have to buy basically a specific product. And so if you only see, you know, like you said, you've been doing this for a long time and you've personally not yeah. seen one. So a lot of places just don't see the point in carrying it. And ultimately, you're, they're probably not wrong because as long as they don't have nicotinic symptoms, like the pralidoxime doesn't do jack squat. Right. Um, but for those who it does, it's a it's a it's literally a, make it make it or break it life saving drug. Yeah, yeah. It's a game changer. So, so you, for dosing. Just to kind of touch on that, yeah, zero point zero five yeah, per kilo kids, with atropine. It's, it's a really important thing to remember because everybody knows atropine from a code dose is zero point zero two, right? That is not the right dose. Uh, you're given a lot more. It's zero point zero five mg per kg per dose, and you double it every right. five minutes, right? And you just keep going, yeah, until this you get improvement in the symptoms. Yeah, like you can give you give it until they stop their respiratory stuff is usually the way they go. So I wouldn't just out and out jump in and give atropine to a kid who's drooling, but I sure wouldn't send him home. Mm-hmm. Um, but if he is having respiratory symptoms, if he is coughing and just having fluid from his lungs and he is wheezing um, and you know he is experiencing respiratory stress, you keep giving atropine until he gets better. Because this is one of the weird things, because it's specifically a nicotinic, or excuse me, a muscarinic problem, the atropine will fix their wheezing. Mm. Um, it competes, right? Yeah, it it's directly with addressing. acetylcholine. It's going in there and, you know, forcibly kind of kicking things kicks off them the off. acetylcholine esterase inhibitor. Um, and so it's freeing up the the neuromuscular junction to function again. And, and you can give huge amounts so when you think about atropine most people think of it in code dose right so we're talking about one gram or excuse me one milligram is 10 cc's right for an adult for an adolescent yeah yeah. and we're talking about the dose you're talking about doubling it yeah uh we carry the eight milligrams and 20 cc's on the airframe purely for this reason while the two bam when you start dealing with giving multiple doses, everybody has their own street version of how they do this. If I've given, whether it's adult or pediatric, I've given more than four doses, they're going to infusion. Oh yeah. That's, that's my personal. And that after they've gotten two, I'm mixing the infusion. It's just here, let's have this in the background. As far as the infusion goes, a lot of people are, I'm just going to titrate to effect. This is one of those you truly have to just titrate to effect. Yeah. Uh, Figure out the math on the back end of what your dose would be every five minutes and then start there and then just titrate up yeah and you're not worried about the tech well you're always worried about but tachycardia that. but tachycardia is not the goal so like when you're given atropine in codes like you're giving it to fix bradycardia right and bradycardia is one of their symptoms but sure. you don't stop at brady like i fix the bradycardia you f- are focusing on the respiratory thing yeah almost but- always 
It's respiratory that kills these patients. Because their heart rate will normalize before their respiratory symptoms. Yes. And you also don't know why they're tachycardic. Right. Like, honestly, like, you don't know. Well, they just got they stuck just, with IVs. They've and been they're also pouring yeah. fluids out of every orifice yeah. in their body. Their insensible losses are super, super high. They get dehydrated hella fast. Mm -hmm. So, like, you're talking about patients who are at, at baseline probably some essence of dehydration which is the next point i was going to bring i'm glad you even said it the next point a lot of people forget with atropine whether you're giving it in a code or what have you is it does dry you up it does so make sure they get they get a bolus concomitant with it not necessarily you don't have to slam them with it you got to give them 20 cc's per kilo or 10 cc's per kilo whatever it is you don't have to slam it with it right away but make sure they have maintenance in the background a for the sugar but b they're having maintenance plus a little fluid so you're getting that volume back from those essential sure. losses especially in pediatrics they're going to be upset I mean, they're getting all this stuff done. They're in a rare environment. They probably have people hovering over them. Oh, yeah. So keep that in mind that they, they're going to need some extra fluid on top of everything else to get, catch up with those insensible losses. And for the protopam, yeah. what, what's your recommendation on um, weight base for that? So I think it's uh, like 0.75 milligrams per yep. kilogram, I yep. think, is the dose for, mm -hmm. for pralidoxine. Okay. Pulled that out of my pocket. That was crazy. Uh, no, I feel good right about, that. Feel good about that. <laughs> I know, I know adults take, are I'm one to two, but I always yeah. have to look so at it. Yeah, adults, you give about two milligrams. Kids, it's 0. 0.75 yeah. up to one milligram for the first dose. And usually you don't ever give more than two for pralidoxine. Um, and that's mostly because, A, the nicotinic stuff should get fixed pretty easily with the oxemes. But, uh, again, it's not what's ultimately going to kill them. Uh, and so there are recommendations on oxymen infusions and things of that nature but from like a pre-hospital community care standpoint you give two doses and you're done um, and then get them to their the sure. most like the closest quaternary or tertiary care center and let them do that kind of stuff um, I wouldn't worry about it in a helicopter I wouldn't worry about any of that stuff if they're seizing give them benzos mm -hmm. um, so let's let's talk about the nicotinic stuff. So there's been some weird things, especially with the phosphates, because nothing yeah. nothing is easy, right? Of course not. Uh, when we start talking about the nicotinic stuff and, the, and seizures, there's a lot of people that are concerned or they they're uh, misinformed that there's going to be full tonic clonic. They're going to seize their tail off. It's like right. some neurogenic subrack or what have you. A lot of times it manifests more like eclampsia. It's more of the skeletal muscles, it's more of the focal seizures, that kind of stuff first. So those subtle assessments, the reassessments on your patients to figure out, hey, has this progressed to a nicotinic state and you do need the 2PAM, those are some important things to pay attention to, especially in kids lip smacking the, mm -hmm. the focal seizures with their hands or yeah. legs and stuff like that. Yeah, it's always important to kind of differentiate between seizure and fasciculations, yeah. right? Um, because you can be nicotinic and not be having a seizure. Uh, but those small motions like you're talking about, you'll see their thighs quiver or their forearms quiver. Um, always check their tongue. I know mm -hmm. that's always weird, but like you'll see these crazy, especially for ingestions, you'll see that their tongue fasciculates. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, we, we tease a lot about people's physical exam skills these days, uh, but like just having them open their mouth, stick mm -hmm. your tongue out. If you stick their tongue out and their tongue is like doing this mm -hmm. weird, creepy dance, like makes you want to mm -hmm. get a, your phone out and take a video of it, they're having a nicotinic reaction. And yeah, sometimes they do go on to full-blown tonic-clonic seizures, but a lot of times they don't. Um, but that's still an indication that they need pralidoxine. Um, and so I, I, you know, I just tell people, CNS depression is... Um, can be from either one, but it is to me a reason to give 
pralidoxine because we know that the acetylcholinesterase uh, neuromuscular junctions, those are all up in the brain too. And so like you need to kind of address those. So CNS depression is one of my indications. If you ever see a muscle twitch though, assume that they have nicotinic stuff and just give them a dose of pralidoxine. Um, and if they, again, if they have a seizure, give them benzos, even though this is related probably to one of the two pathways, benzos, benzos, benzos. Um, it's, it's just easier to kind of get it out of the way. Um, same thing with like airway control. You're probably going to mm -hmm. want to control this airway pretty early. Yep. Um, but any of these patients with CNS depression or respiratory depression, like you got to be worried about more than one pathway from the organophosphate. And again, one, one thing just kind of throw props out to the poison control, uh, Mississippi poison control, 1-800-222-1222, um, call Medcom 984-4-EMS, um, call early, even if you just, if it turns out to be nothing, no harm, no foul, but yeah. to give you guys a heads up as yeah, quickly as they can. And, and it helps everybody out there uh first off and i don't know if i'm allowed to say this but i'm gonna say it anyway every single time you call poison control to report a poisoning it goes in a database and at the end of every year they look at that database and see how many times are people calling and that's how they get funded mm -hmm. so if nobody's calling nobody's funding and nobody's gonna be on the other end of that phone call when you make that phone call mm -hmm. so every poisoning every ingestion every you know medical thing should always be reported anyway and the other side of that is like you said, Will, toxicology can get complicated. I love toxicology. I think it's super fascinating. And I have like three textbooks on it. And my fellows make fun of me all the time uh, because my favorite of my textbooks are my tox books. But that's not everybody. And, and it shouldn't be everybody. And you got a lot of other things to worry about when you're taking care of patients in the back of, uh, you know, Podunk, Mississippi, or in the back of an ambulance. Like you don't have time to do all that stuff. So that's what those people are there for. So like you can call and you can talk to a poison control specialist and they will pull stuff out of databases that they have access to and give you everything that you need to know. And if it does get too complicated, they, you just talk, ask to talk to the toxicologist. Our docs here at UMC cover the toxicology phone. Um, you'll get a resident doctor first for the most part and then you'll get an attending doctor uh, who has done a toxicology fellowship and is toxicology trained and they will give you all sorts of good information and if you don't know the dose of pralidoxine they can tell yeah. you the dose of pralidoxine Absolutely. Uh, and so that I we we call poison control all the time and we are the tertiary quaternary center in Mississippi and we call it all the time I don't always call to get advice but I call to tell them hey I got a kid here who's sure. interested in this thing and we need to report it uh, so that it can get watched. And the cool thing is they follow up. So if you call from your ER and say, I've got a kid who ingested, you know, Drano and we sent him to UMC and he got better. And so they sent him home. They will call UMC to find out how the kid's doing. And they'll also call the family at home, like in a few days and see how the kid's doing. Mm -hmm. So they're like, it's a built in like home check. So it's a pretty cool system, and I definitely, you're right, Paul, like, it's a great, it's a great it's resource. such a good resource. Guys, anything else on environmental stuff, or we move on to fun things like... Let's see, anything on there? Maybe, maybe a little bit on acid bases, I think, um, you know, a lot of people think, oh, it's acids, you know, what if, if it's a pool and it's muriatic acid or whatever, yeah. um, 
but basic substances are bases so much, are worse than so acids. much worse. Bases are always worse than acids. Um, and you know, if you look at the literature, it, it, it uses terms like liquefaction yeah. of tissues, liquefaction between nine and a half and twelve pH. And you think about what that actually means. You're you're literally turning tissue into liquid in seconds. So, uh, you know, if you think if you think about it, you know, bases are way worse than acids, regardless of what the substance is. Just as a whole, bases are way worse. In general, the kind of things that I, I focus on when I talk to people about acid-based stuff, um, yes, bases are always worse. Like, I care way more that you ingested um, oven cleaner than mm -hmm. that you spilled a little bit of, you know, the silver acid that you kind of used to clean your jewelry on. Mm -hmm. um, but there are kind of a few things to always talk about that aren't that big of a deal. Like, we see kids transferred all the time for... Uh, a base caustic substance exposure and it turns out it's just household bleach mm -hmm. household bleach is not sodium hydroxide it's sodium hypochlorite it has a ph just a little bit higher than seven uh it's really honestly not that and it's usually like what like two percent or yeah, something like that it's super non so you could drink the entire bottle of bleach at your house and other than feeling like just garbage and puking your guts up for a little while uh, you're really honestly not going to get that sick from it. It's not going to do that bad. It's definitely not going to burn your esophagus or your stomach or your intestines. Um, so watching the nausea and watching for aspiration is important because chemical pneumonitis can happen from stomach acid. It's not even necessarily from the bleach itself. Um, so paying attention to that. Uh, but it does affect your eyes. Uh, your eyes don't tolerate too, too much of anything getting into them. So I always, whenever we talk about acid base, I always want to talk about eye stuff. Uh, flush the piss out of these things. Anything acid base of any kind, it doesn't matter how big or how strong it is. You just, the, you start flushing. Um, and we do a liter per eye, period. Mm -hmm. Every, everything. It doesn't matter if it's like close to normal or not. So you just go in, if you have pH strips, Awesome. That's like the favorite. Use a pH strip, test their eye, find out what your starting point is, and dump a liter in both sides. Uh, we do some MacGyver stuff sometimes with this. Like you can take oxygen tubing mm -hmm. uh, and put one nasal cannula on one side of the, you know, one into one tear duct and the other into the other, just right across the bridge of the nose, uh, and basically hook up IV tubing to the back end of the oxygen tubing and just like use it to dump fluids through um or you can literally just have somebody help hold this person down and you just pop that bag and just like start dumping saline or water into the, each eye and every single time you finish a liter do another paper strip if you don't have ph paper um you probably should do it for pain and then transfer them somewhere else like never assume that because their eyes stopped hurting that they're done yeah. They need to get somewhere where they can get tested because, you know, a lot of times, A, kids lie to you, uh, and B, you know, again, just because the pain has necessarily gone doesn't mean that they are back to a pH of 7. They can still be a pH of 8.5 and not have that bad pain after three liters of fluid have been dumped on their face. I'm glad you brought that up because most people don't, as far as what you can use, I think most of us are taught in EMS starting out, you always use oxygen tubing because it's the only thing you have available. It's easy. 
But if uh, if you do have a Morgan lens, that's great. They work awesome. They're fantastic if the patient will tolerate it. They are one. uncomfortable as a mother. <laughs> and two, it's a kid, so trying to get it in the kid, I've done it. I know, Paul, I've know you've done it too, and it's very painful to watch yeah, yeah. and very painful. And they're huge. So, and I'll, and I'll also huge. say this. Every time you change out a bag, please put more from a personal experience. <laughs> Put more lidocaine, yeah. tetracaine, yeah. through the the actual Morgan lens. Every time you swap fluids, you should add more tetracaine. Yeah. Don't use cardiac lidocaine for the record. No, do not use cardiac. Yeah, don't don't cardiac sure lidocaine. Appropriate ophthalmic drops, not anything redneck there, but uh, definitely tetracaine's a. Love it. It does remove the ability to use pain as a guideline for you. So if you're, if you don't have pH paper and you're using tetracaine, you need to be planning to transfer them while yes, you're dumping 100%. fluid on their face and not, not stop until you transfer them, um, because you you don't have anything else anymore at that point to kind of measure stuff. Going back to acids and bases real fast, if you know what the substance is, again, really important. Also, it'll help you with, as far as decon them or anything else, you can use those ERG books or anything, mm -hmm. or poison control that can tell you if they do have a really uh, caustic base powder or solid that's on the patient, make sure you don't use an acid or something to get it off. So you should, I, I would just argue most of what we teach in toxicology is you should never attempt anything other than neutral water to decon acids and bases. We still see people all the time like, oh, I'm gonna neutralize the base, I'm gonna put baking soda on it. Or, oh, I'm gonna, you know, whatever. Though every time you neutralize an acid with a base or a base with an acid, you create heat. Yes. It's a chemical neutral It is reaction. always a thermoproductive um, reaction. Mm -hmm. uh, so it is thermogenic. And so you are going to burn somebody. <laughs> and I think it's good if, if, if it's something, to your point, a powder, if it's something that you can dust off whatever you can dust off first yeah try to get get some off without making the situation not worse. with your bare hands not no. with your bare hands <laughs> well i mean we we both know folks that have done organophosphate poisoning to themselves because they didn't wear gloves mm -hmm. when mixing things but uh, yeah, same you thing say, with powder and i'm glad you brought up neutral water as well make sure you understand where the water is coming from yeah so if it's coming out of a creek what's in the creek only if all those all those kinds of you know where it's coming out even city water if i hey that may have something in it or some kind of chemical that's chlorine or what have you in there water out of a fire truck is not not, not, not <laughs> so uh not saying everybody rush out to walmart or kmart or target or yeah. any of those and get to a whole bunch of distilled water but that's what you want all right guys that wraps up our first episode of peds toxicology click on to episode two for more on Pete's Docs. This has been a presentation of Blue Crew Medicine.